You're listening to the City Lights Sermon Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to a book we've never turned to on a Sunday, Ecclesiastes. It's, uh, if you're not familiar with the scriptures, but you brought one, it's right around the middle. So go in the middle and then maybe go just a little to the right. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a book that uh, the person who wrote this is really historically known as the wisest person to ever live. Uh, earlier when we, we care for the people who care for our children in the service, I was giving them the message and I said, well, Jesus is technically the most wise because he's, he's got it. It's like the Sunday morning answer, like Jesus is like the number one. But if there was a number two with wisdom, it would be Solomon. And Solomon, if you're not sure, sometimes we're, we can be, you know, misunderstand what's the difference between mercy or grace and Sometimes we can misunderstand what the difference is of knowledge and wisdom. Well, wisdom is uh, you have information, and then you have understanding about information. And if you understand information and you know what to do with it, that's wisdom. And if someone is a wise person, not because they know stuff, someone is wise when you can go to that person and say, here's my predicament, what do I do? And they go, based on the information, here's what I understand, and this is the most wise thing to do. And when they do that thing, they are better, and those around them are better because of it. Well, this book is written by the person in history besides Jesus, who was the most ready and available person to give discernment and instruction to really the world at that time. So it's quite stunning. And so this book is written from his viewpoint. That's like getting up a mountain and being able to look 360 degrees at every single piece of information and object and be able to know exactly the best next step. I mean, that's, that's awesome. We, we want to be those people for others, and we want to have those kind of people in our lives. So that's who we're reading from. So that's just a little bit of background since I've never uh, preached or taught on Ecclesiastes in this house. Although I will say, as I've been reading this book this week, I was like, man, maybe this will be a really great next series for us or sometime soon. Um, I want you to think about this question for a moment. It's totally changed the subject, and it's still on point, of course. But who has been a hero in your life? Uh, and, and get wide. It doesn't have to be somebody you've met. Maybe it's somebody you revered. Uh, let's be shallow for a moment. Maybe it's like a, a fashion hero, like, oh, I just love their style. I know for my wife, she just loves Kelly Ripa. It's like, what would Kelly Ripa do instead of what would Jesus do? Although she loves knowing what Jesus would do. I mean, she really, really likes her and, and loves her style and loves all she does. So, you know, we can, we can be aware of the world around us. But who is a hero that's been out there for you? Maybe not somebody you've known. And I'll just lead the way. Uh, if you would have asked me by the time I was probably 18, I instantly would have said, Nolan Ryan. And if you don't know who Nolan Ryan is, he was uh, a pitcher for baseball who is now in the Hall of Fame. And I just was thinking about what my answer would be. And then I remembered, oh my goodness, last time I thought about Nolan Ryan, I was on this stage and I ripped up all, um, all of my Nolan Ryan baseball cards, which were the most valuable which were the most valuable baseball cards that I had owned to that point. And it hit me this morning. I was actually in the restroom when I thought about that. I was like, oh my goodness. And here's what happened for me. I thought about how unfitting of a hero he was for me. That's not why I ripped them up, by the way, but I did rip them up because uh, when I collected those things, they meant so much to me. And now Christ means so much to me, not just as an abstract idea, but not only the fact that he is my hero for how he loved people and led people and how wise he was and sacrificially was and how kind he was, all of those things. He's the, he's the pinnacle of all that for me. Not only is he a past figure in that way, but he is a present figure who is my hero, and he calls me his partner. He calls you his partner, too. You don't have to be on a stage. You don't have to wear a tie. You don't have to be up here and do these kind of things to be a partner with God. God actually chose partnership with you. Jesus, who calls you friend, actually said that I yoke myself to you. He says, be yoked to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. If you're not a farmer, and I'm not, and I never was, and I'd like to be maybe at some time for a little while, it'd be fun. But a yoke is ultimately there would be two cows or two bulls, and there would be a wood beam that would go behind their neck, and then a bracket that would go underneath their neck, and they would work together. And Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come find rest in me. I don't know how that's been taught to you, but you realize what he's saying? I'm already in this. Come on and be with me. And so often in our, we say it with our words. I don't think we believe this theologically, mean what is accurate about God. But in our words and our practice, we add God to our life and ask him to compromise and move to what we're doing. Or even real spiritual, we ask him to bless our plans because we're Christians and we intend well. I'm not dissing that. I just think it's lesser than he intends. But he calls you partner. And if you're at an equipping environment, if you didn't come to an equipping environment, you can find um, those messages online. I really encourage you to as a 
very, very um, groundbreaking time for us, life-changing time for us as we were understanding the, the authority of the scriptures. God started everything in the garden, the garden called Eden with Adam and Eve, and he said, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over all these things and extend it. And, and God's vision was, I'm gonna get everything started and then I'm gonna create partners who will finish the work. And, and God actually physically, emotionally, mentally, and relationally went into Sabbath, which is not nap time after he created, but engagement to enjoy. And Jesus, you know, and so like that's the first few chapters of the Bible. In fact, I think for the rest of our lives, we could just have the first three chapters of the Bible and not need anything more because God's intent then hasn't changed from any of the pages that we read from. His intent was to live in fellowship with partners. And God never changed even when humanity rebelled and said, I wanna do this outside of our partnership. God said, I'm gonna still partner with you. Language like God pursued or God was long suffering or God was kind or he was patient. I mean, that, that's the story of the scriptures, a gracious God who pursued. You know, a statement like the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding steadfast love is not a post the resurrection of Jesus statement. That's an Old Testament statement that people who were suffering said about him. People who are stuck in their own muck. You know, somebody who's in trouble and they're just continue to find themselves in trouble. Privately, you probably struggle with like, I mean, they kind of made their bed. They've got to sleep in or like, this is kind of what they got themselves into. God never treated us that way. And he didn't wait for us to go, help. He's always been committed to his partnership with us. Always. Before I was a Christian, that terrified, no, no one said it to me like I'm saying it right now, but that terrified me that God might know where I'm at or there would be a door that he could walk through that I closed that if there was a divine being who was a judge or had a good idea or if he's authority, like any authority in my life, I wanted to get as far away from him as I could. But I realized God was committed to the partnership with me long before I ever said, oh, would you forgive me of my sins and I trust you with my life? Long before I said that, I look back and go, wow, you had to have been there that day with the police officer. You had to be there that day when I was with that woman. You had to be there that day when I was doing that vandalism. You had to be there. And I look back and he's like, yeah, I've always been there. I'm like, wow, God. And he's like, you're wild about your foolishness in my partnership around you and preserving you. But I don't want you to be wild about how I picked up the slack when you were dropping things. Let's be wild in our partnership together now. I did all of that saving, rescuing, committing so that you would not miss your purpose. And my purpose is intertwined with your purpose. And your purpose can now be intertwined with mine. This isn't a new idea. This isn't a, oh, we celebrate the cross and the death and the resurrection. Oh, now it happened. This, this is an old idea. God's so wise that his plan didn't change. He's just had a really tough marriage with us. Seriously. Do you know, as a side note, why God hates divorce? Not because he made a law and chose that we should be married to each other. He's just never considered divorce with us. Now in Jeremiah's, he's a prophet in the Old Testament, 400 years before Jesus was uh, born of a virgin. He comes on the scene and God says to Jeremiah, you have, this is in the Bible, you have been a whore. <laughs> You've committed adultery and, and you have lain with lovers underneath every tree on planet earth. Now they were doing those sexual things, but he was actually talking about the emotional, relational disconnect and distrust and rebellion of God's people to himself. And he says, I'm the groom, I'm your husband who loves you, who leads you, protects you. And you go get pleasure everywhere and anywhere and it doesn't matter to you. And he goes, and I will divorce you. The very next sentence. But if you would just acknowledge your ways, I will not give you a certificate of divorce and you are restored to me. All he's saying is not like, mm, I'm really considering divorce. I'm, I'm going to mediation. We're separated. He's just going, this is how bad things are. And I'm not going anywhere. And I'm only letting you know so that you understand the severity of your decisions. The other side that, uh, that's so interesting about sin, I wanted to be rescued out of my sin in my ways when I became a follower of Jesus. Because I, I think that somehow in his wisdom, it doesn't justify doing simple things, but I had done enough stuff that was self-centered that it got me in so much trouble with everybody, even including myself. I didn't even wanna be around me anymore. In fact, my mind thinks all the time and I would turn up music as loud as I could to try to drown out just me because it was miserable being me. And all along, Jesus is like, 
you're my partner. We're still partners. So what does partnership and purpose look like for you and me then? I mean, do you have personal vision for partnership? Do you have a, quote, hero? The reason I can rip up the Nolan Ryan cards, even though they, have a, a, they had a significant monetary value, and we could have used that monetary value to build our building. We could have. But for me, it was a personal journey of idolatry. I couldn't use, personally, I couldn't use something that was, was a form of idolatry and, and making something that is so unworthy of affirmation. I, I couldn't turn that in. And I'm not saying that, you couldn't sell your boat that you lived wild on and give it to the property. But at least in my own personal journey, my hero is Jesus and he is my partner and I am his and we are. And it's so exciting to me. And so I've had to search the globe for new heroes. And William Wilberforce is absolutely a baseball card or a sports card that I would not rip up today. I'd only need one just to remind me of uh, his inspiring story. If you don't know who William Wilberforce is, I'm not going to take the whole morning to uh, describe to you who he is. There's plenty of wonderful literature. In fact, there's a great movie called Amazing Grace that was really wonderfully done about his story. I mean, just a a jaw-dropping film, so I encourage you to watch that. If your last name is Wilberforce, you're going to do some great things, by the way. Uh, You just, if you're endowed that way, it's going to happen. Um, but William Wilberforce, uh, and by the way, they didn't have, you know, cameras back there, so this is just a rendering. He's a, he's a fine-looking guy. In 1759, of course, he was born. In 1785, he became a follower of Jesus. And by the way, if you're here and you're like, hey, why, why don't you call him a Christian? Well, just, I'm not trying to rebrand Christianity by any means. I think it's a great title for Christianity, but uh, I just want to put a synonym there that Christianity is about being in relationship that's moving with God. So follower of Christ, it's not just getting saved and doing whatever I want, because there's, there's churches even in this city. If you went to 10 different churches in the next week, you might see churches that said, just make a decision to follow or trust Jesus and, and ask him to forgive your sins, and then you're good. And, and that, that's like minute one of your purpose. And so I, I would never want to present to you something so significantly less than God intends and promises for you. And, and salvation is, it's just the beginning. So he starts following Jesus in, in 1785 and he's in Britain and slavery and slave trade, at this point, slave trade, I mean, tens of thousands of people just because their skin's brown are being uh, sent over to the Indies by the tens of thousands. And look at this, two years after he becomes a follower of Christ, he dedicates his entire life to end the slave trade. By, seven, uh, by 1807, there is an abolishment of slave trade from the British Empire, but slavery is still uh, a real thing that's happening in Britain. Three days after he physically dies, three days after, so he was able to live to see this dream fulfilled. In, in 1833, he died, but three days before he died, the Slavery Abolition uh, Abolishment Act basically uh, came through Parliament and it happened in Britain, so in his lifetime. What's amazing to me is, uh, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, what was the highlight of your life and what, what contribution did your life give to humanity before you became a Christian? And I just want to state that once we are following Christ, it should be drastically, insurmountably, immeasurably more awe-inspiring. And listen, I'm not, if you're new here, I'm not this preacher, teacher guy, or whatever this title you think I am. I'm not the guy who's going to try to get you riled up and go like, let's be the church who does this and does that, and we got to have bigger dreams. I just want us to dream the dream God has. That's it. And if ever any of us are casting vision or calling you into something that falls short of what God describes as purpose for us, come let us know and say, hey, you didn't go far enough. I mean that. And if somehow I we could cast or present a dream to you that's bigger than what God says, let us know about that too. But it is not gonna happen. The biblical writers looked for the best adjectives they could find and all they could find was immeasurable, indescribable, incomprehensible to define the very things of God. So what would cause somebody to give their lives like this? Well, look, here's a quote from William Wilberforce. So enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable, that's a, that's the word of the day. Did the slave trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up to, do, to, to completely annihilate and make slavery extinct? Let the consequences be what they would. That's just saying like, for better, or for worse, I'm doing this. I've decided that from this time, I determined that I would never rest until I had affected its 
complete annihilation of the disrespect and dishonor in, in the inhumane ways that a colored person would be treated. And three days before he dies, he gets to see it. I just want to make something real clear. Uh, I don't think my, I don't even know if my wife's here today and she hasn't heard me say this, but she won't get nervous. I don't want to pastor another church. And if I leave this church, it's not going to go to be a pastor of a different church. And I know that's, that's a big thing to be held accountable, but I'm, that's not a showy thing. My point is this. I believe for such a time as this, God has such specific purpose for, for this church and these people to do that we can actually see it come to fruition in our life. And it's not that if another church, and I believe, by the way, he wants to do that for churches all over the world, not just city lights. And I believe he wants to do it for many churches in Greenville, South Carolina, but I think there's a very specific purpose and purposes that God's given to this house. And, and the reason I don't want to go pastor another church is not because we're so clear and we're so strong. It's, that's not it. It's just that I believe that I personally can go fulfill that in my own family. You know, not City Lights, but just my last name's Armfield. We can do it and we're doing it on our own. But my confession is, and maybe it's because I'm turning 40 in a month. We're not compromising anymore as a church. Not that we were before. But the purposes of God are so clearly articulated, not only in the scriptures, but now we're hearing them. We have language for it and we understand he has given us such gifted and true understanding of why we are here that I refuse to waste a day of my life and City Lights gets the majority of my waking hours. And it's worth it. And so what I'm calling us into, I, when I read William Wilberforce, I go, oh, that's how I feel. That's absolutely how I feel. Oh, is it for the slave trade? No, it's, it's that heaven and earth would be so perfectly met here in Greenville, South Carolina, that when people talk with you or they eventually walk on our property, the Swamp River Crossing, or they experience time with the people of God, they experience the, the love of God and the purposes of God, and they so get caught up in it that they actually start living for the first time. So when I say I don't wanna go pastor in a church is because I've been doing this for 20 years vocationally now, and it's not that I've been going through the motions or compromising, but I look back and go, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. We're not doing that. That's a waste of time. That's a waste. No, forget that didn't produce fruit. We're not doing it. And so I'm, I just want to say that we are so committed as a church to do the things of heaven here on earth that Jesus made it so clear. Go extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Heaven and earth meet on you. And we haven't had a property that we can develop and build. We do now. So for the first time in our history, heaven and earth meet on a physical property where the people of God are and where the people of God are inspired in the plan of it. So we're not just adopting some thing that was done in the past. We're re-envisioning. William Wilberforce had to re-envision what humans should be treated like. And we want to settle for nothing less than that. So what would be written about you if, if a Wikipedia page was written about you from this point backward? Because if you read William Wilberforce right from the get-go, it talks about him being a lawyer and serving in parliament and being this who's who politician and, and high figure. But what he's known for is ending slavery in Britain and giving every last moment. I mean, I'm so thankful to God that he was able to see it happen, at least by law, before he physically died. That's, a, that's so kind, because when I read through the scriptures, a lot of people did not see the fruition of their purposes and the things they gave themselves to. That's a kind, that is such a sweet thing that he got. And listen, I'm great if I live to, let's say, 87, and I'm still doing what we're doing right now, I am so excited that we will hand off to the generations a healthier a pure faith. And I want to profess that uh, our prayer team prays every Thursday together in my office. And a few weeks ago, we genuinely didn't just think and feel or wish, we genuinely watched the stronghold of the religious spirit die over the upstate of South Carolina. And I've been here for about 17 years and it is, it is thick and nasty and it's gone. So we're not going to the property, begging on the floor, like, God, destroy the religious spirit. I am thankful, and we are thankful that people long before us have been praying against legalism and, and a fundamentalism that says you got to work your way to God. We didn't have to contend much. In fact, the mentors in my life, once I realized this massive demonic stronghold that was this, this power that was just influencing every single spiritual thing, it seemed like, I, would say, I was encouraged by some of my mentors in their 60s and 70s and 
Uh, they just said, do not dare contend with that, that stronghold of religion. That is so powerful. No one person can contend with that. We got to pray that the heavens, uh, the, the, the angelic and the power of God destroys that. We haven't even had to labor really entrenched praying daily and fasting daily for the, the atmosphere to change. The glory of God is lighting up so much. First John says the light is so much shining that the darkness is passing away. So what if a church didn't focus on all the things that aren't going on, but actually focus on the things that ought to be on earth as they are in heaven? And that is the purpose of this house. And for the last five years, we've been trying to exalt Jesus with you. And we've been trying to equip you to exalt Jesus. And I just wanna make this very clear. 2018 is the year for City Lights that we will be extending the kingdom of God as a people, not just as individuals, but as a purposed church. And it didn't hit me until yesterday. I was like, what's going on, Lord? He goes, you've been spending the last five years exalting me and it's been so good and wonderful. I've, I've received your worship and you've built relationships. You've grown in conviction. You've experienced my power and you've been equipping each other to do so. Your, your most highly attended thing outside of Sunday, uh, Sunday morning is equipping environments and city groups. It's good. And he said, but now it's time to get out. Not the movie that's creepy on the screen and not in a bad way. It's like, now it's time to turn all the glory inside out. And he's entrusted 13 acres right on the Swamp Rabbit Trail for us to be able to extend that. This isn't a Swamp Rabbit Trail message or crossing message, but it's, it's where we're going. Ecclesiastes chapter three, let me read this. I'm gonna, I'll start in verse one. I'm really gonna teach on nine through 13 though. So the, the I called him the Ecclesiaton earlier in, in walkthrough. And I think some people just because I'm the pastor guy. Like, oh, I guess that's the way to say it. I've never heard that word, but it just seems right to say the Ecclesiastes, like the psalmist. But his name's Solomon. Solomon says this after he's, he's experienced all these things and seen the, the pros and cons, the fruit or the foolishness of the things that we do. He says, for everything in life, all of our lives, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So everything on earth has a time. And seasons come and seasons go eventually, he says. There's a time to be born and there's a time for death. There's a time to plant and there's a time to pluck up what's planted, meaning to reap a harvest. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. There's a time that break things down and there's a time to build things up. There's a time to weep and there's a time to laugh. There's time for mourning that we do with one another and there's times that we should dance together. There's time to cast away stones and there's a time to gather up stones. There's a time to embrace with one another and there's a time to refrain from just being cozy and embracing one another and, and, and do. There's a time to seek and there's a time to lose, to, to, to be seeking things and a time just to stop doing that. There's a time to keep and there's a time to cast away. There's a time to tear things because they need to be teared and there's a time to put things back together and sewing. There's a time to keep silent and don't say a word and there's a time that we need to raise our voice and we have to speak. There's a time to love and there's a time to hate the things that are uh, repulsive to our God because they corrupt the world. There's a time for war and there's a time for peace. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. Even John Lennon, like, you know, writes from this portion of scripture when he's talking about there's times for all these different things. Verse nine. So in the midst of the seasons and the things we do and their prophet, Solomon just says, so what gain has the, the worker from all of his work? What gain is the people who are giving themselves to occupation and, and moving things? And, you know, all those descriptions are things that we're doing as humans. He's like, what's the point of all this? And here's what's amazing. He gets on the top of the mountain, does a 360 degree full understanding of the fruits and the foolishness of all endeavors. And he goes, so what's the point? So what if I live morally and I attended church and I stopped swearing as much and I, I was kinder to other people and then I retired and I went to heaven? Like, what was, what was the point of that? And again, my point is not for you to beef up your Wikipedia page, but does God intend more purpose than just the, the, the chances and changes of the work we do? So he says, so what's the point of all this is what he's saying in verse nine. Then he says this in verse 10, he says, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. All right, busy is a, is a swear word in the church. And it's kind of a swear word everywhere else. Like, oh, I'm just too busy for this. Jesus was never busy, you know, like we are, but he was constantly busy with purpose. Uh, for those of us who are like, I'm almost 40. So if you're 40 or above, remember landline phones? Some of you might still have them. Landline phones. Remember before there was call waiting and you'd call somebody, beep, beep. You're like, oh man. And you just keep calling back and calling back. 
You know what that person was doing on their side? The phone was busy. But you know what they were doing? Just one thing. Busy used to mean, like it means here, that your life is given to something. Busy now means I'm trying to juggle so many things that I'm not actually good at any of these things or to anyone, including myself, and I'm burnt out for the sake of God. That's not godly. It's not God's will. Anybody who's burnt out and stressed out, and I've been burnt out and stressed out in my career, a lot of it's because of emotional stress, but I've overcommitted myself. God's not like, now that guy, man, I gotta bring him to heaven soon because he's, he, I mean, he's doing laps around everybody. He's so busy with my stuff. The business of God that man is busy with, you can put some synonyms in there. The occupation that the people of God are occupied with. Even that, hey, what's your mind occupied with right now? It looks like you're not present because you're distracted. Jesus was always present. So much so that Jesus was so, quote, busy doing one thing and occupied with one person that on the way to make an appointment that he was supposed to be at and help people, he was sitting and occupied with the present company, being fully present with them, busy, one thing, one anothering, that people died waiting for him. <laughs> literally, literally died. The scriptures actually tell us something about that story, though. It's amazing that the God, the Father said to Jesus, delay three days before you get to that place, but head that way. And he headed that way and got stopped. And he was, quote, busy, not doing a ton of things, but talking to just, at one point, a woman who had a hemorrhage of blood for 20 some years and wasted all her money and, and she just touches his garment and, he, and she's healed and he stops and spends time with her and talks to her, which Jesus, by the way, may be the single most influential person to restore the respect and dignity of female in all of history. And I know we have some progression in our country in the last hundred years or so, I get that. But to talk to a woman was forbidden by a religious teacher in public. You couldn't do it. He not only does that, but this woman was unclean. You know, if you had a disease like that or an ailment like that, you would have to walk in a crowd like this and go, unclean. You'd have to announce yourself. If you're on the Swamp Rabbit Trail and you're walking, a cyclist will go, on the left. And that means get out of the way. And, and, and you literally be like, if I'm gonna pass, I have the right to move. So you would literally have to be like, I'm gross. I, I, because they thought you could catch their disease. So this woman has the boldness to just touch. She touches Jesus. She could have been killed for that. Jesus stops them going and says, hey, who touched me? She's gonna die. No. He restores not only her body, she's healed. But as long as he talks to her, her social equity goes up, 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 up. When he eventually dies, then resurrects and is seen, not only was he the, the man who healed her, He's the son of God who rose from the dead. That's who she is socially now. What? Now it's like, hey, make the way. Here comes that woman. Everybody get out of the way so we can listen to her and get a good look at her. Before it was like, hey, make sure you tell us because we don't want to be anywhere near you. That's what one moment with Jesus can do. Changes everything. Changes everything. Jesus was busy. He was occupied with the occupation not as a, like, we don't even know much about, was Jesus making rocking chairs or was he a stonemason? Yeah, I think he did some of that as his, quote, vocational thing, but his occupation was the kingdom of heaven being lived out on earth. We don't know much about his craftsmanship. I don't, I don't know that Jesus made a chair that, like, we now have at uh, Ethan Allen or, like, Ikea. Like, oh, I think that's the Messiah chair. That's what it is right there. It's a slow rock. Not too rocky, just a little rock. Like, no, I mean, we're, we're, we're amazed and drawn in by Jesus because Heaven breathed off him. He made all the wrongs right in sight. And he wasn't rushy about it. This word uh, busy with only shows up in Ecclesiastes in the whole Bible. It's kind of neat if you think about it. So when you think about busy, the, the most wise writer in the Bible does a 360 degree picture and assessment of everything. And he says, I'm gonna create a new word and it's gonna be to be occupied with. So I just want to ask you guys, I have three points. First one is, what are you proactively occupied by right now in life? It's one thing to be occupied. It's another one to have an open mind where you, you just kind of go at the mercy of what you feel and think or what Netflix shows you or Facebook or CNN. That's not what I'm talking about. 
That is a passive, you're, you're proactive to position your mind and heart and emotions before something that tells you something, tells you what to do and think and feel. I'm asking you on a daily basis, what are you proactively occupied by? Because I, I, it's clear to me in this passage that God intends for his people to be like Jesus was, preoccupied. It's like walking into a room, you go, hey, your mind looks preoccupied with something. But when they say, Jesus, your mind seems preoccupied, it doesn't disconnect, it actually brings connection. I'm preoccupied with the wrong so much so that I am proactively involved in making it right. All of us are leaders. Some of us are leaders talking about how bad things are. You are not helpful. I'm just saying. Others of us are leaders who know the things aren't, that are wrong with the world and are doing something about it. Well, I'm just one person. I can't do much. Well, at least stop talking about how negative it is and look to the scriptures that says hope is on the rise. Jesus himself said in this life, it's gonna be rough. But when it's rough, take cheer for I've overcome the world. You know what the same word in the Greek is? In this passage is the word to be joyful and to find pleasure. So when things are rough, Jesus, things are rough. And he's gonna go, hey, tell your rough stuff about the joy we have together. Bring our partnership into the poverty. Bring our partnership to poor. Bring our, our partnership into promiscuity and loneliness, Chris. But God, do you see how bad it is? I know how bad it is. I love it. I'm committed. That's why you see it so you can do something about it. We don't need another critic. Oh, God never gets that loud with me, by the way. I'm just expressing, trying to shorten it. Wilberforce says this, I would suggest that faith is everyone's business. If you haven't been here a while and I haven't said this enough, we do not believe there is a sacred and a secular. We believe that it's all his, it's all Yahweh's. The secular or opposed to God has crept in and stolen things. The enemy comes to rob, steal, and destroy but the kingdom of heaven is so much on the advance that the, the gates of hell cannot withstand. The gates of hell are not proactively like walking out and trying to do something. Heaven goes to the gates of hell and says, we're taking it back. Jesus went to the place of death and said, rise captives, rise who were lost in dissipation, come on. There are extra biblical meaning accounts in the, I, I read a uh, Roman literature from the time when Jesus resurrected and there, I, I've read Several accounts where Roman guards came back from the tomb area and said, not only did they see Jesus rise, but they saw hundreds and thousands of people come out of graves after him and the sky lit up with light and we heard something like singing over it and we were so terrified that we came to tell you. The historical Roman document goes on to say, seal that up, do not tell anyone. I would suggest that faith is everyone's business. The advance or decline of faith is so intimately connected to the welfare of a society, that's Jeremiah 29, that it should be the particular interest of every person. Yeah! We don't think there's a difference between sacred and secular. We don't have a secular service or a secular talk or a, a secular way to talk about Jesus. Jesus is the way, truth, and life, and he informs everything. So when I've talked about the Swan Private Crossing, the vision, I know some of you are still getting on board with that and trying to understand it. When we talk about having our worship auditorium able to be used by uh, all different kinds of art forms and meetings, it's because we are going to lead the way for harmony and peace and reconciliation. And they can put their art on display and we're going to literally help them come to clarity. Just like the Holy Spirit's done for us. We're gonna be hosting weddings. I mean, it's... I. It is so Jeremiah 29 that you seek the welfare of the city and they will help you find your welfare. Wilberforce is it's what he's saying right here. You know, we, we've done all kinds of things that we're occupied by. When I heard that word occupy in here, I thought of, uh, have you seen those protests where people like occupy Wall Street or um, there, there's all kinds, it's like a silent protest, but they put signs out and sometimes they'll chant, but they'll just sit there. And like you've seen images, uh, they're all over the place. We do not occupy, that, that's, it's proactive, but there's nothing really happening. It's just trying to, to get attention. And I'm not dissing protests at all. When we talk about being occupied with something, it's not that we have to go search for a cause. The cause is that God intends for heaven to invade every single pocket of humanity. 
If I could only choose one area to influence, and this is, this is almost 40 years old. If I look up at my mountain right now and spin around, I'd say, if I only could influence one thing, if it was arts and entertainment, or if it was education, or if it was politics, or if it was health and wellness, or if it was whatever, uh, spirituality, even Christianity, it wouldn't be my choice. It would be family. It would be family. Because not everybody wants to be Christian or Jewish or Muslim, but every person I've ever met in my life wants to be connected to another person. You know where that comes from? In the beginning, God created. And God said himself, let us make mankind in our image. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Do you know why we long for people? You know why we long for community and family? Because it's, it's literally written into us. If there's one mountain, if you've studied some of these things, you know, if there's one mountain for me in my personal life for the rest of my days, that's why I said, I'm not interested in passion of the church. I wanna see if this one works. I'm not gonna try to start over with better people or different people or a different area. We're meant to be as people right where we are, breathing heaven right where we go. St. Augustine said it, he's one of my favorite old church fathers, that God, you've made me for yourself and I will be restless until I rest in you. The misunderstanding of that means I just gotta get saved. No, 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 no. God, you have made me for yourself and I am restless unless I'm occupied with what you want me to be occupied with, unless I'm in proactively with the things of you. It's not a, it's not a stress narrative. It's not straining, it's not striving. It's choosing into partnership and saying, I, I can't afford another day in this life where I'm banking on your kindness and my kind obedience and rebellion. I can just say as a 39 year old, I'm just so bored with the world's stuff. I'm so bored of it. It's so underwhelming. And the only thing I found in this life and this list includes sex and some drugs and drinking and all kinds of creativity in bad, destructive ways left me so bored. And there's nothing like partnering with my Yahweh. Nothing. as a church, we must demand this moving forward. I'm occupied with the purposes of God right here, right now. I'm no longer banking on the kindness of God to make up for my lack. I am banking on the calling of God is what I give myself to. So what are you busy with or restlessly occupied by? That's a real question. Our equipping pastor, Oliver, when he heard me do a little of this message, he's like, tell him what to be occupied by. <laughs> he's like, Chris, you've got to tell us some how. And I go, no, nah, man, I'm the wow guy. You're the how guy. <laughs> and, and it is true. That's part of, those are different ways of talking about it. I'm not here to wow you, but part of my wiring with God is to be able to see out, 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 wherever, the, the heavens here now, and Oliver's really uniquely gifted to go, here's how we can help the people get into that. So Oliver, you'll probably close this morning. Number two, what eyes, ears, and mind are you using in this life? Here's where it comes from in the passage. Verse 11, he, made, he has made everything beautiful in its time. So if you look at the earth right now, and you go, oh, there's no beauty here. What eyes are you using? Well, Chris, it says in, in its time, there's beauty and, and there's not beauty in our, in our era. What eyes and ears and mind are you using to come to that conclusion? I'll, I'm not, that's not enough to convince you. I'm not suggesting it is. Listen, also he's put eternity into mankind's heart. That's the word um, man is actually the word Adam, which is mankind. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. All right, so why is my question for this portion, verse 11, what eyes, ears, and mind have you been using? It's like this. Uh, this passage is kind of, 
confusing at first read. It says there's, there's beauty at times, but there's times when there's not beauty. Ultimately, what, the, what Solomon's saying is, there are so many things you'll be distracted by in this life and you can literally spiral down, but the kingdom of heaven has always been spiraling up, always been spiraling up. Earth and humanity is not going to hell in a handbasket. Can we please stop prophesying over houses and families and cities that way? It's just, it's just immature and nearsighted. The scriptures, if the scriptures were blurry on that, then I would understand, but they're not. It's real clear, really, really clear. And so the beauty is finding the purpose of Yahweh, the purpose of God, the purpose of Jesus. In every moment, there is beauty. I mean, Jesus, you know, his first sermon, when he gets a platform, the first thing he says is, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, the blessed, beautiful thing are the people who are most broken and know it. So he actually looks to the most outcasted, broken, ugly thing and says, that's the most beautiful thing I've seen on earth. You know why? Because they were prime and ready to receive refreshment and wholeness. The very things that he lived, died and rose and ever lives so you could walk in. So I'm not, you know, when people talk to me privately, they're like, well, Chris, you're just an optimist, man. I go, I think I'm a realist. And they're like, you're a real optimist. Yeah, you know, that's what you are. And everybody needs a pessimist. Somebody's gotta be the party pooper. So that's why you invite me. Like, I've gotta point out the things that gotta get done. And I go, you know, we don't, I usually laugh and like, ha ha personalities. But at this point I'll go, ha ha, Bible, Martha and Mary are hanging out with Jesus and Martha's all kinds of busy and Mary's all kinds of occupied. There's a time to weep and be at feet and there's a time to be doing other things. So if there is beauty to be seen in every moment, something that inspires the heart of God to do all that he does and to continue to be partnering with us. Let's see with those eyes. Let's listen with those ears. Let's use that mind. First Corinthians 2, 9 through 16. It'll be on the screens for you. It's not on my notes. So I'm just gonna read it up here. But listen, this passage, before I read this, you don't have to change, just leave it up there, Becca, thank you. But it says this, that uh, God is so put eternally into our hearts. It actually means, uh, it's, it's really not the word eternally like you'd see in the New Testament where we talk about eternity as quality time and quality. Uh, this one is actually the better, better rendering of this is God has put in every person a concealed matter, meaning there's, you know the secret of what really matters. And eternity is another way to describe that. New, uh, I think King James uses the word world. God's put the world in everybody's heart. You're like, oh, that's sacred. I mean, that's secular. No, it's sacred. He's saying, I've given you and concealed the secret of what everything is. But Solomon goes on to say, so that he cannot know what God has done from the beginning. What he's saying is this, like, What's good is our labor and what's beautiful and what's not. Like, we're so confused. We weren't there from the beginning. We don't know how it's gonna end. It's all so confusing. That's why Jesus said, I'm so excited for the day that I go back to heaven because the Holy Spirit's gonna come and lead you in all truth. The all truth is 1 Corinthians. So Paul writes and he says this, what no eye has seen, nor any ear has heard, nor the heart of mankind has ever even imagined. Like you could not even imagine what God's prepared for those who love him. It's saying like, hey, when you try to dream a dream so big and you think you're gonna introduce God to a new edge of bigness and grandness and beauty and love, you've barely even scratched the surface of the immeasurable width, height, depth, and length of the love and plan that God has. That's what I'll say. I've been high and I've been drunk and all that stuff. What I'm saying is the world offers things and says, come escape here, come get big here, come find here. And what I've found is I get to that edge and I go, is this it? And I get attracted to like, I'm gonna try it again and try it again and try more and try this. With Yahweh, with God, it just in prayer. I've, I mean, this happened a few months ago and I'm, I'm a visual guy. I literally sensed this, this growth in relationship with him where I got to an edge, but it was my edge. God, can I see this? Can I know this? Can I feel this? And it was all happening. I'm like, whoa, I'm like, and I'm done. And in that moment, Jesus appeared and he was right in front of me and goes, are you ready? And I went, to go home? Not heaven, like, to like where I live physically in Greenville. And he goes, no, are you ready to start dreaming? And I went, what are you talking about? And I just hushed because I realized all that he just allowed me to experience was not even the beginning of what he planned. It was so much grander. I've never done a drug like that. Are you... I don't like when preachers are like, are you with me? But are you understanding this? And that's a dumb question as well. He's like, yes, or no. But, 
We'll see by the way we live. C.S. Lewis says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. Now, let me pause. And dare I argue with C.S. Lewis? How dare I? I've met every Christian I've met that reads that says, I can't wait to get to heaven. So hungry for that place. Just gotta get. And here's the response. This world's passing away. And so I just, my longings will never be satisfied here. So I'm just, I'm so excited to die someday. It'll be gain. Paul says to live as Christ, to die as gain in a different way, but to live as Christ. Let's just believe, hey, CS, I'm just gonna believe that what you meant by that is another world, but the here and now where the kingdom of heaven invades this earth. And so, yeah, when I look at this, I look at Greenville and I look at my marriage and I look at my parenting and I look at my body and I look at my relationships and I look at this church and go, I'm not longing to be here and retire so that I can go to a heavenly church or have a heavenly marriage. Like, no, I, you're not holding back, right? Like you've given my mind to be occupied with these visions of grandeur that are sweetly placed right here in the scriptures, right? And he's like, yeah, that's why I gave them to you. That's why I gave you the Holy Spirit so you could lead right into it and know wisely how to do it. I'm like, well, then I wanna do it. And he goes, great. You're not hoping for a chronological someday. You're hoping for that day to be here right now. And I go, yeah. So if that's what CS means, it's awesome. But if you or I interpret that as, well, it's so bad, we're going to, pull away from the world and just be about our spiritual bubbles and we'll exalt God here and we'll equip each other with Bible knowledge and Bible verses. We'll win every sword drill to no Bible verses ever. We're gonna win every Bible trivia. We're gonna become the most holy moral group in the world. It's gonna be amazing. It does no good. That's the disciples. After Jesus leaves, they all go in the upper room like, dang, we've got all the knowledge. We know everything. Don't anybody, we'll just call in for takeout. Like, let's get delivery. Let's never leave the upper room. It's awesome here. As soon as the Holy Spirit came in, they ran out. And 3,000 people were affected that very day. Exalt, equip. It's the year of extending the kingdom of God for this house. Just is. Different than years past. We're now doing it together. My expectation has been and my call to you and my charge to you has been as a person, go wherever you go, heaven goes. It meets on you. And I believe now it's not because we've proved ourselves worthy or we've learned enough lessons. We are works in progress. But for such a time as this, the beauty of transforming a part of our city, not just for that place, but that the city that is a beautiful garden city. There was a garden called Eden and it ends in the book of Revelation with a garden city. And we are going to build towards the garden city on this earth in this lifetime. Walter Kaiser says it like this, man has an inborn inquisitiveness and a capacity to learn how everything in his experience can be integrated to make a whole world. That's all I'm talking about right now. By the way, none of this is like, man, this is fresh teaching. No, man, it's so stinking old. I was reading from commentaries from like 1908. People just, the church has just lost its way and got all kinds of sloppy and has completely removed all the things the world needs and played by themselves. And the world figured out things to keep themselves busy with. And now the church is starting to copy the world and we're now busy with the things that are actually not our occupation. That's why if you or I are not good at Sabbathing and resting and trusting God and we're so distracted, none of this is gonna work. That's a big statement, but you know what I mean. Eternal purpose is proven worthy through unyielding proactivity. Uh, if you've worshiped with me in a small setting, and I've, you hear it in preaching, but you might not hear it as loud as in a song if I sing it. We don't need to pray about, God, would you come? Or may my heart be the place where you are? Or, would you invade this place? He's already done all that. And we need to live as people who know those things are past tense and already presently true so that we can bring the perfect of his kingdom right where we are. All of it. Christianity has been really good about passivity. Like, God, whatever your will is, let it be done. That's, that's good. That's a good statement. Jesus only lived every day proactively doing the will. And, and we, we see it and we know it. Yeah, it's to love God and love others. Like Oliver talked about, it's to really be considerate of others and actually extend the kingdom right where we are. Last week's message is just the primer for this one to say, as a people, that's what it looks like as a person. And this is what it looks like as a people to go and do and be. 
So what purpose are you going to relentlessly and restlessly pursue this year? You know, if you've been here long, I don't get this specific with you. But forget this year being the year of chance and happenstance and we'll see. God has given us genuinely, he gave to Peter who said, you're the Christ, you're the son of God. He goes, here's the keys of the kingdom. What? He goes, here's the keys of the kingdom. What am I supposed to do with these? Well, the kingdom of heaven is rent, it's open now. And your statement is literally the entrance to understand that kingdom. So what do we do? Peter, when he first understands and he has the Holy Spirit, he runs out and tells everybody, hey, you guys killed the guy who was the guy and he's resurrected and he's the one, he's the way, the truth, and the life. And the 3,000 people are drastically, physically, emotionally, spiritually changed on the moment. I mean, literally at the moment. And then they get baptized publicly, which is literally saying death, death to whatever religious institution or familial connection they had prior to that because now they're uniting themselves with the way that guy Jesus who resurrected from the dead. So they have, a, they have a personal encounter and then they have a public declaration right in that moment. So what purpose are you going to restlessly pursue this year? And by the way, when I say restless, I'm not saying that you're, I'm gonna see you next year. Like, man, I'm just, I'm just worn out, I'm worn out. I'm, I'm like, man, what are you doing? Like, I'm just about the kingdom of God. I'm like, no, you're not. I love you, but you're not. You know, we just sang, by the way, I mean, it was a while ago now, but we sang, without your presence, I'm nothing. One thing that you have had your entire life is the presence of God. You have, whether you believe it or not. Biblically, you have, because it wasn't up to you to get his presence. His presence has committed himself to you. He's, he's a God of covenants. He's never changed. We went on to say, without your presence, I'm nothing. Then we went on to say, without your presence, there's no meaning. You know, the Old Testament, the presence of God was not in people. The presence of God manifests itself in the day, a glory cloud, and at night, fire. And you know what they would do when all the people were together? Like if that were happening right now, there'd be a cloud. If that cloud went through that wall, do you know what every single one of us would do immediately? Follow the presence of God wherever it went. And they would have to pick up their stuff. You guys would be easy. You'd go grab your kids, you'd grab your stuff. That would be like moving out of your subdivision right now. We're not a very mobile people. <laughs> and I'll just confess, that's one of the reasons our family rents now uh, instead of owns a home. Is it financially smart? Probably not. But we're realizing some of the things that were smart financially are earthy doctrine. That's not me accusing anybody for having a, a house, by the way. I hope you know that. I'm just talking about my own process of understanding this. I needed to loose that so that I could be more mobile and go and not be tied down. Part of it was it took us like three months to sell our house. I can go cancel my lease right now and leave. I'll pay a fee, but that, I'm okay with that. You, you understand? Like the personal applications of kingdom look different for so many people. We can be inspired by our stories. Without your presence, there's nothing. There's no meaning. Do you, what, you, that's what the people of God in the Old Testament, all like the first half of the Bible, actually the first two thirds of the Bible, that's all they knew. Wherever the presence of God is, I'm going. I truly believe that the presence of God has been waiting for this church to inhabit our property. I, I mean that. I'm, I know that's a strong statement. I believe the presence of God is here, but he intends for his glory to be shining in this city in a way that he's inviting us into. And I, I just want to make this clear. I need you and you need me, and we've got to get serious about doing this. To me, there's nothing more important in this life. I, it's uh, husbanding for me, fathering, and then this. It's loving and friendship and all that, but that's all part of that. I mean, it, I'm gonna be restless about it, not anxious that that's all we're doing. We are moving forward in obedience in that way. You know, it said Joshua obeyed and decided to do every single thing that God told him to do. And so he literally entered into the promised land, crossed the Jordan, entered the promised land, crossed the Jordan and the Jordan dried up. They went to the first battle and God said, I want you to march around this thing seven times and do this and then blow horn and, and the whole city falls. Joshua decided like, hey, whatever you say to you, I'm gonna do it. And I just wanna make a, a something I want you to hold me accountable to. It's not just a promise, but that's, that's all we're doing. Whatever he says, we're gonna do it. Without his presence, there's nothing. Without his presence, there's no meaning. I'll exalt you, no other name be lifted high. The last thing, number three, is what pleasure-filled good are you proactively pursuing? This passage ends this way. Verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better than for people to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Man, that's real nice. <laughs> Listen, it gets a little better. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of their work. Eat, drink, and pleasure sounds like the day off. Yahweh intends through this, the most wise person in life says, oh, 
so deeply entrench yourself with joy in the things that you're doing and take time to eat together and drink and laugh. Do you know that the word, uh, the word joyful and then takes pleasure in those scriptures? So in verse 12 and then in verse 13, it's the same word in the, uh, in the Hebrew. It's the same word in the Hebrew. And it means to um, be joyful or to rejoice. If you've been here before, joy is not an emotion. Joy is a confident, deep position of your heart and your mind. It's saying, I will find my greatest joy in the thing that God's purposing. The, the second of the two where it says takes pleasure, which is, we're very familiar with the word takes pleasure. Do you know what's very pleasurable? When you do a project and you get to watch it and you get to not only see it finished, but you see its fruit. William Wilberforce was able to at least see it come to conclusion. Let me read how this is actually written. There's nothing better for this church to do than to be confidently, deeply confident in what we do, the good work that we're doing, heaven on earth, and that everyone should eat and drink. That's not only for ourselves to have our daily bread, but for the whole world. That's why we care about things like that. And listen, and to see the good of their work in their lifetime, what's the next statement? That's the greatest gift from God in this life is that we would see the byproduct of his purpose coming true in our lifetime in front of us. Not only workers, because we're not guaranteed how the fruit, I mean, God produces fruit. We just get to join him in partner. The, this, this passage says the greatest gift that God gives right here in this passage for workers who are doing his purpose, the greatest thing is to actually see the word joy or to take pleasure. It means to literally see the fruit of labor. It's to see the fruit of the vision of the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. It's the best. So if you're a person who's like, oh, by and by one day, I'll fly away. I want to get there. Just come back a little bit further and go, can you just make it happen here? I'm not talking about a utopian society. I'm saying as I read the book of Revelation, Jesus looks down and comes and makes his inhabitation with man. We believe as a church how that all actually works is that the church will actually be the salt and the light in every city, in every home and family that totally transforms culture so it is a heavenly culture on earth. And Jesus sees that, that he sees that his bride is devoted and passionate. And he says, I come to marry you. And at that wedding feast, he clears out any leftover filth and what remains is his church. I'm not gonna be passive about that. No one has ever been called to be passive about any of this in the Bible, by the way. Ever. C.S. Lewis says, you never know how much you really believe anything until it's truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life or death to you. I wanna show you a picture that Kelton and I have been working on together. If you could, uh, Lindy, if you could turn the, the lights that are hitting on me is almost off if you could, because I really want people to be able to see this well. <clears throat> um, a matter of life and death. I know this might sound silly, but Kelton and I have been working since Tuesday on this one image. And it might not, I mean, it, it is spectacular. You should go, ooh, that's pretty. Um, but I mean, the refining touches that we've been doing night and day, I went up to his wife today. I said, hey, Lindsay, thank you so much for allowing him to talk with me every day and, and in the night and in the morning and when he wakes up and all those things. Just thanks for lending him. And I know that family well enough that they go, oh, this is about, the purpose of God in our lives. You weren't stealing him away. This is why we're alive. And Kelton told me that. And Lindsay, you know, she didn't get to say words, but I'm sure she would say something like that in her Lindsayan way. What is this? I, all I'm saying is this. This might sound silly, but Kelton and I as artists decided uh, as we were doing artwork together over the last few months, he's helped do all of the Swamp Rabbit Crossing imagery. I mean, he's this incredibly gifted artist. I actually told Oliver this week, I said, my partnership with Kelton is he is literally able to take the dreams that God has given me and put them out physically. What's cool is I'm an artist, I'm a trained artist, and I can't do these things. I see them and we talk about it. And then he sends me pictures and I go, oh my goodness, there it is. So what is, so when C.S. Lewis talks about, once you decide something really matters, you'll be willing to die for it. Well, I don't know that Kelton and I are willing to die for this, but we're willing to say this is so important for our church to be able to envision what God has that we're gonna give literally from Tuesday to this day. I don't know if you've been tracking hours, Kelton, but it's been a full-time job just to create this one image for you so you can better understand what it looks like where heaven meets earth. This image, by the way, uh, Becca, could you just show the, the um, diamond? 
the Swamp Rabbit Crossing, by the way, our church is still called City Lights. We're going to be the owners of all this so that the world can enjoy and, and see what heaven's like on earth and partake in our gardens and our grass and our rooms. It's going to be really fun. Those top three triangles have always been a representation of Garden City. There is a garden called Eden, and there's a garden that will be a city. Why were they supposed to be fruitful and multiply? Because people were going to multiply, and they can't live in a garden anymore. They need an entire governing economy. That's what heaven on earth is. So the top three is what that imagines. And Kelton took the vision of those drawings that I did a long time. Do we have that black and gold image anymore, Becca? Anyway, we... We'll talk more about this, but that top three right there, all different renderings that I drew. And then Kelton, let's go back to the Garden City. And Kelton brought that to life so that we could invite people to literally experience heaven meeting earth. And the bottom subtext used to say where heaven meets earth. And Kelton a few days ago goes, hey, Chris, what about heaven and earth meet? As a statement, like, oh, heaven and earth meet. Like you're watching it happen. I went, oh, well, that's it. I just want to say, even our artists, we are cre- I just want to say, as almost 40 years, we are creating the most important, theologically accurate sermons, and they're going to be hung in people's homes and put on walls and billboards. Our artists are saying, we will not compromise. We will forego sleep and finances. Kelton's been doing all of this for free out of the goodness of his heart because he feels called to it, which I don't want to take advantage of him, but it's amazing. What, what's the point? What are you, what pleasure-filled good are you pursuing actively that when you see it come to fruition? I mean, Kelton and I were texting each other at six in the morning. I'm like, bro, I'm, I, I have to confess, I'm like crying in my office right now looking at the final image. He's like, me too. Is that, you know, you guys are artists. You're so emotional. I've never cried about an art piece I've done. And I didn't even do this. I'm a conceiver. He's a creator. Partnership. Let me just close. Claude Bissell says this. There's some debate online about who actually said it. Some guy, it's not even worth mentioning, but some guy's trying to steal it and make it like it's his. But if you do enough research, you'll realize it's this, Canadian's guy, uh, this Canadian guy. He says this. Excellence is the result of caring more than others think is wise. Kelton embodied this for me this last week and many weeks. He's just, every day he's working on these things. He sent me the final product when I was already asleep last night. It's not wise, Kelton. And he, and he played drums this morning and set up too. Risking more than others think is safe. Hey, you're gonna burn yourself out. Hey man, if you give that much time to the church, it's gonna cost you finances. It's gonna cause you opportunity in the world. It's not gonna be good for your resume. That's what I say to that. I know that's immature, but I'm just, for a minute, I just can't help it. And I mean that, I poop on that. That's how, Paul said that. Actually, that's theological. Paul actually said, everything before Christ, I look back at now and it's excrement. He actually said it. So that cleans it up, pun intended. Dreaming more than... More than other think is practical and expecting more than anyone thinks possible. That's what we're doing. And we're not trying to do anything new. We're just trying to cast God's vision that he started. So what exploits, what exploits that you occupy yourself with will be written about you at the end of 2018 in your Wikipedia page? Listen, everybody ends up somewhere. Everybody ends up somewhere. But not everybody ends up where they are on purpose. This time next year, I want to be beyond where I envision us to be because we hoped in God and he did more than we could ever ask or imagine. And I just want to make it very clear. I need you to be in. I need you to be a giver for this to come true. And I want to do it with you. I want to see his kingdom come and his will be done with the humble, kind, sacrificial, even little Micah Joel two-year-old. I want to pass on a church to Micah Joel that he has to go to history books to hear about a spirit of religion or that Christianity would be a word that Christians don't want to use anymore or that the church wasn't funding education and healthcare and the things that city needs. He'd have to go, wait, wait, did the church, was there a time when the church wasn't the greatest thing in the city? And I go, yeah, let's go look at some history books. Would you guys stand in girls and kids? I, I, I say to you as your brother, I, I humbly receive a position of, of authority because I'm a talker up here. But I just, I just commission every one of you to forfeit, to proactively forfeit 
every other purpose than his kingdom coming and will being done, not in a passive way, but how. I ask you this question as you leave. You go pray with the Holy Spirit and you pray with your son, your daughter. You talk with your spouse. You talk with somebody you want to marry. You talk to somebody. You go to your city group and say, how can we make this happen today, this week, and this year? How can we partner as a church? I commission you into literally answering that question and deciding I will be completely occupied with the occupation of the kingdom of heaven resting perfectly in this city. If you didn't know what this church was about, this is it. And I want you to be with it. I want to go with you. I don't want you to go figure it out somewhere else. If you're still taking time to figure it out, I love you. Stick around. I'll keep talking this way. Sometimes I'll be a little calmer. Sometimes I'll be crying. Sometimes you'll be up here casting the vision but let's do this. So the prophet Isaiah, God says, who will go for us and whom can we send? I hear it right now, Yahweh saying the same thing. And you know what Isaiah said back? Here I am, God, send me. So can we just answer back in a unison voice and say, here we are, God, send us. And then we're gonna say, we are sent because we're not passively waiting for him to send us. So we're actually gonna move it forward. Here we are, God, and we are sent. Can we say that together? Who will go for us, Yahweh says. Who can I send and who will go for us? Here we are and we are sent. Here we are and we are sent. Let's say it again. Here we are and we are sent. And one last time. Here we are and we are sent. God bless you. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please let us know by leaving feedback on our iTunes channel. We hope you've enjoyed exalting Jesus with us.